Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. So probably one of the most notable players that you played with was Phil Esposito. Any thoughts on him? Well, Phil has a lot of confidence. Like, he really does. And, you know, when I look back at my career, you look at an NHL dressing room, the boys all have a lot of confidence about themselves, whether it's quiet confidence or you project it verbally. And then you go to the minors, and there's uh, probably half the team in the minors. They've got just as much ability as the guys playing in the NHL, but they were way more, way more mousy, quieter. They didn't have that confidence. And that was the only difference that I saw with many players is they just didn't believe they were as good as they were. And if you don't believe you are, then management definitely doesn't believe you are. And so Phil, he had lots of confidence. And You know, when I think about Phil, there's, there's, there's nothing bad about Phil. He was a happy guy and, you know, he wasn't a grouchy guy. I just remember one time I needed some points. This was early in the season, the year I got sent down. I did pretty well. Um, I had lots of chances to score. And the good thing is, is when you get chances, it'll start happening. The thing is, if you're not getting chances, then you know you got a problem. So I knew it was just a matter of time before the puck started going in and things were coming together. But uh, I needed uh, a few more goals to get this thing rolling. And Phyllis Mizzuto and I got a two-on-one. And uh, we're just coming over the blue line. I'm in the, like the right in front of the goalie on the blue line heading straight. Esposito is against the boards. And the defenseman is supposed to make sure on a two-on-one that you take the pass away to the open winger, the guy without the puck, the weak, the, the weak side. This guy played it all wrong. He charged Phil. And Phil, he just had to flip it over to me. And I got a breakaway. Nobody around me. I was so excited. And Phil took a wrist shot from the blue line. And the goalie caught it. And then the whistle went. You know... I'm saying to myself, like, why wouldn't you pass the puck? Rather than go back to the bench and say anything, I waited a couple shifts and I asked Phil. I said, Phil, didn't you see me open in the slot there? And he said, oh, yeah, but I had a good shot. And, you know, that kind of brought it all in perspective. When you are a 50-goal scorer, a 40-goal scorer, a 35-goal scorer, and you're the guy without the puck and that goal scorer has got the puck, you might as well just go sit on the bench because those guys, when they're coming down, they're not even thinking of passing. They're thinking about shooting every single time. Whereas me, I go down there and kind of wait until I got closer to see if the defenseman came over to me or the other guy was open. And I would say advice, you get a 2-on-1, don't even think about it. And this is selfish, but this is a lesson I learned. These 50 goal scorers, you know, because also at the end of the year, just like Samenko said to me, he never got any credit as far as uh, making money in his career because he, he was saying that, you know, he was so valuable on the Oilers, so valuable. And you don't judge a guy like Semenko by how many goals and assists he got. He, his presence, his willing to stand up for anybody at any time in any game, that was his value. But he would say, you know, when it came time to negotiate again, he'd, they'd say, well, you only got eight goals this year. And, you know, how do you think you deserve a raise? Everything was goals and assists. You know, but I think if I was to do my career all over again, 
I wouldn't worry nearly as much about my own end as I did. I would just try to score goals and think about offense because that's what it's all about when you play hockey. How many goals, how many assists, and that's pretty well the bottom line. So anyway, so Phil, I learned a lesson. You get a two-on-one with a guy that scored 40 or 50 goals many times, you might as well just go sit on the bench. So lesson learned, Phil. But it feels eerily, I'm not knocking him, but I did learn a lesson from Phil. And your your captain was? Uh, Dave Maloney oh, was Dave. the captain, and Don was his brother. Okay. And so Don was, uh, out of the two brothers, I think he was the probably the one that was the most popular. He was more of a team guy. He was not. He was not selfish. He was a hard working guy, and his skills were average. And every practice, after practice, he'd stay out and he'd do different puck carrying drills. And he would work hard, and he improved his game. He showed up every night. I would say, you know, Donnie got into management, which you know the guys that are most likable on the team, they always seem to be able to get into management. He got in as an assistant uh, general manager with Glenn Sather in the Ranger organization. And I believe he spent 10 years as the general manager of the Arizona hockey team. And so Donnie did real well for himself, but he did it through hard work. He did it because he was a, a good, good guy and he carried that work ethic over into his office as his general manager. And the last name that I have is John Davidson. Well, you talk about personalities. That's John Davidson. You couldn't find anybody that played with him that could ever say anything about anything wrong with JD. He's outgoing. He's uh, talks to everybody. John is a John is a character. I I had the fortune to play with him, and he was also my roommate with with John. One of the things that was kind of funny is I didn't realize that he was colorblind. So when we go back on the road for a couple of weeks, his wife, Diane, she used to take his suits and put his shirts that he's going to wear with that suit jacket and the tie all together on the same hanger. Being colorblind, he didn't know what matched. So one day we're always playing tricks on each other. So John leaves his room, or our room, and so I went and I mixed up all his suit shirts and ties and mismatched everything and put it back the way I found it. And so for about a week, he was wearing stuff that wasn't even close to matching. And finally, somebody had said, John, you got such poor taste. And then he realized that I was screwing with his, uh, with his suits. So that was pretty funny. But it's not an accident, John. He, you know, he was the president of uh, St. Louis Blues. And then he's president of Columbus. It's his, his personality, I, I believe, that got him there. So you mentioned that you were sent down to the minors, which I think was the first time in your career that you've ever been sent to the minors. Correct. But before we transition to what it's like to play in the minors, do you have any anything else about the Rangers or any fun facts that you want to share that you've written down? Well, you know, I actually uh, wrote a few facts down, just thoughts that came to me um, about Madison Square Gardens and the Rangers. And, and it was interesting. Craig Patrick, who was the GM for a while with the Rangers, he had told me that he had to deal with 67 different unions in Madison Square Gardens alone. And what does that mean? Well, after a game in Madison Square, if we were 
practicing the next morning early in Rye, New York. It's, you know, an hour or something drive. And so the trainers would tell us to put our equipment, wet equipment, into our bag. We were not allowed to zip up our bags because the union had to zip up our bags. And if the union, if none of their people were around and they were on a coffee break or whatever, and they're in a hurry to get this stuff out or it has to go to the airport, our equipment, the trainers were not allowed to put the equipment bags or sticks onto the truck. That was union. And so many nights, I know these guys stayed up a lot later than they had to because the union wouldn't, you know, weren't there to zip up the bags or they were taking their breaks before they put the bags on. So I just found that interesting. 67 unions. How do you deal with that? Another thing, um, this uh, Hedberg and Nielsen, I played with those two guys. I played against them in the World Hockey for a number of years. You know, they're fine, fine hockey players. Outstanding. The things that those Swedes could do with a puck in a practice and in a game. Outstanding. And, uh, Sherilyn and I, the wife and I, would go to Hedberger and Nielsen's house on a regular basis for supper. And we think the world of their two families. One thing that caught me by surprise is, you know, playing, growing up in North America. Uh, for me, I played all the sports. I played the football right till junior. I played baseball till junior. Um, I played soccer. I, I played tennis. I was on the water polo team. Uh, I'm a lifeguard. I did scuba diving. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Because you just kind of cross-train playing other sports. That's what you like to do. So I was on the Rangers baseball team. And so, first time, Hedberg and Nielsen were out with us. And uh, before, when you first get there, you warm up. So you get a partner and you throw the ball back and forth. And I look at Hedberg and Nielsen, and the way they threw a ball, it was hilarious. I'd have to show you the way they throw a candy. I don't want to say, it's kind of like, well, somebody like who's never thrown a baseball. And then when... The ball was coming at them. Instead of just catching it without thinking, they kind of took a stab at it with their glove. It was hilarious. I said, what? I said, you don't know how to throw a baseball or catch? And they said, well, in Sweden, we don't have baseball. <laughs> I never thought of that. But it was these world-class hockey players. I just didn't think that they didn't know how to throw a baseball or catch it. I think everybody throws rocks. I don't know throwing a baseball is an extension of that, but I, I just found that pretty funny because those two Swedes uh, couldn't catch, but I couldn't skate as well as them, so maybe it's all relevant. The other thing, uh, let's go back to Madison Square. So even as a player, you're sitting on the bench, and if you happen to look up, whether there's commercials or even you see there's a ruckus going on, those Ranger fans, I love them. I believe personally that they are the best fans in the league. They love their hockey team. And as I told you earlier, I mean, they booed me. They're passionate. So that's okay. I still love them. And um, if you, let's, I remember many nights. So if we're playing the Islanders and there's somebody in the stands walking around with an Islander jersey on in Madison Square, I have seen this time and time again. Somebody would run down a Ranger fan. And just grab this poor soul, or two people would grab him, and they would tear the Islander jersey right off him, and then throw it away or step on it. You were not safe. I see them throw beer on guys that wore the wrong jersey in there. And when I played with Montreal, myself and uh, Pierre LaRouche of Cornway, we weren't dressed that night against uh, the Rangers, so we, we could have gone in the press box, but we said, well, let's just sit in the stands. There's some empty seats. So we were sitting there. 
and we had to take our suit jackets off because it was getting hot. And uh, I know one of us had a, a white shirt on with a Canadian emblem on the pocket. Well, the fans figured out that we were players with Montreal, and a few of them started spitting at us, so we had to leave. So their fans are in Master Square Gardens. They're unlike anybody else. Their loyalty to their team is second to none. I'm not saying you have to spit on anybody, but I'm just saying they take it to the extreme for sure. But, uh, again, I love those fans. Another thing I was interested in coaching the Rangers is Herb Brooks told me, he said he, he looked stressed out one day, and uh, him and I were the last two in the dressing room. I said, so how come you're all stressed out today, buddy? He said, you know, it's so tough coaching the Rangers. And if I'm not mistaken, back in those days, there was the Rangers were owned by a team out or by a company out of L.A. called Gulf and Western, huge company. And he said, you know, those executives, they own us, but they would phone me up and tell me who I got to put on the power play and penalty killing. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no. They would phone and tell me who they wanted on the power play. So you talk about a little bit of interference. So now, did Herb ever, you know, do what they wished? I don't know. But it was just the fact that they were going to tell him, the coach. These guys probably didn't even know how to skate. Never mind tell the coach who should be on the ice. So I thought that was pretty weird, eh? So, and the only other thing I got to talk about was Freddie Shearer. I got to go back to him. He, he was a very good man, you know. He really was. And he treated me fine. And I do remember, you know, at the house in, in uh, Rybrook, New York, we had this little green phone book that we write everybody's name down. Friends of ours from over the years in the many cities, places I lived, had all the players' phone numbers in there and the management, the coaches. So I was getting my basement fixed in uh, in New York. And it was just great at training camp, and I brought in this master carpenter. And his name was Fred Sindrich, I believe was his last name. And I brought him in, and he went through the house, the basement, and he said he could fix my basement, and yeah, and it would cost this much money, and it would be in this time frame, and Everything was perfect, no problem. So he gutted everything, and there was sawdust all over, and boards, and tools. And but Freddie, he didn't show up every day. He, you know, he first started off the first week or two weeks. You know, he was there every day, and then a week would go by, or two weeks would go by, and he just wasn't showing up. And there was problems. And, and I remember, you know, months and months have gone by, and the and and the wife was saying, Cam, you know, we've got a little boy, which was Chris then. Can't even let him go down in the basement. There's tools and sawdust and wood and sharp things. And so dust coming upstairs, sawdust. And this has got to get completed. So she kind of laid the law down with me. So I got a hold of Fred. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Made excuses. And it, this had gone on for months. So, okay, I'll be there for sure the next day. And, well, of course, the next day he didn't show up. So I come home from practice and... Uh, the wife was upset. I thought you said he was coming. I said he told me he was coming. So I phoned him about 1 o'clock or so. Looked at my green phone book, Fred. Phoned this carpenter up and a uh, lady answers. And I said, uh, yes, can I speak with Fred, please? And she said, well, he's uh, sleeping right now. And I said, well, I'd like to talk to him, please. She goes, well, who is this? I said, it's Cam Connor, the guy he works for. And she said, oh, well, okay, uh, let me wake him up. So she went and woke Fred up and he came to the phone and I said, Fred, Cam Connor. Oh, hi, Cam. I said, where the hell are you, man? You're supposed to be here. And I gave it to him, right? I said, the house is, it's a mess down there. And I started chewing him out. And I said, who did you want to speak to? 
I said, you, Fred Sindrich? She goes, he said, well, no, 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 no. This is Fred Shiro. Oh, man. My wife almost fell on the floor when I said, Fred Shiro? So I said, anyways, I told Fred's wife. It's the guy, Cam Connor, the guy he works for. Anyway, so Fred was a good sport, right? He just said, well, Cam, keep that number. I might need a carpenter. So I just thought that was pretty funny. And is that a good transition to why you ended up in the minors? <laughs> yeah, well, well uh, yeah, you know what? Freddie didn't send me down there. Craig oh, okay. Patrick sent me down. So actually, you know, Freddie, I asked him about it. I said, right, you know, why did I get sent down? He said, Cam, it's all politics. Just believe me. He said, it's politics. Now, what does that really mean? I don't know. But that's a sour note as me going in the minors for sure. So uh, you do have some stories to share, though. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, I got sent to New Haven Nighthawks. I could still stay in Rybrook because if, you know, I head one direction, it's an hour and something to Madison Square. And if I go to the minors, it's an hour and a half in the opposite direction into Connecticut. So I remember the very first day with my gear and my sticks. And I'm standing outside of the New Haven Nighthawks dressing room. And it says, New Haven Nighthawks personnel only. And I stood there for about a minute. And I didn't really want to open the door. And I was just thinking, you know what? When I walk through this door, my life's changing. So I took a deep breath after a minute and walked in. And I'm now a New Haven Nighthawk. And, uh, you know, the town of New Haven is, the city of New Haven is very good. That's where Yale is. I met some wonderful people. The team was owned by an individual by the name of Joel Schiavone. Joel was a wealthy man who, who had uh, degrees from Yale and from Harvard. And uh, I can tell you stories about Joel. He had a lot of patience with his hockey players. Uh, and maybe I should just, I'll just, before I talk with the minors, before I forget. But Joel, he loved his hockey players. And he, had, he was a stutterer. But he overcame stuttering, you know. He bettered himself and he talked. Sometimes you could you could hear that stutter, but... He did pretty good. And I know the year before I got there, the guys were telling me that Joel had a party at his house. And one of the players got drunk and drove his car into Joel Schiavone's in-ground pool. And Joel just hired a, a crane and they pulled it out. Didn't give anybody shit or anything, you know. So the next year we had a party at his house. We had a guy on our team named Pat Conacher, who wasn't making as much money as the other guys. And Pat was a short kind of a stubby guy and we're over at his house and he's got this uh it almost looked like uh it had these exotic fish in this long long fish tank it's probably about three yards wide two yards wide and maybe 20 yards long like he had a big house and it was you know all tropical fish and it was up on a on a, on a kind of a platform and so nobody was around well, Joel wasn't around, and us hockey players, we said to Pat Conacher, hey, why don't you uh, strip down to your underwear, and if you if you swim all the way down and back again, we'll give you 200 bucks. He goes, okay. So we pick him up, and we throw him into this fish tank, and he he did one length there, one length back, and sure enough, he's just getting out, and Joel Chavone shows up, but we were waiting for him to get mad at us, but old Joel, he just laughed. So I think the hockey players must have entertained him, but he was a good man, anyway. So that's Joel Schiavone. So I get down to the New Haven team, and, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of really good guys. I enjoyed the, the guys on the farm team. And um, the only thing I could say about New Haven 
is we uh, we were a pretty close team. We all we had, there's a lot of guys with personalities, and we all got along well. On a personal note, you know, I went down there and I had confidence down there because I said I don't belong down here. If I get my chance to go back up, you know, I'm going to fight way more, be way more aggressive, do what got me to the big league. So I went down there and I worked hard every single game, and I got. I played 61 games and I got 61 points. I had 33 goals, which was the most on the team. I had the most penalty minutes that year. I had the most fights. I was two points behind the guy that was the leading scorer. I had 61, he had 63. But he played 12 more games than me. I had the highest plus minus on the team and I won the MVP on our team. So I thought that, you know, perhaps my stats winning in every category would be enough to convince Craig Patrick. Give me one more shot. So that year we go to training camp and we have, we, we'd just been on the ice a couple of days and the guy that's coaching our farm team, his name was Tom Webster. He said to me, well, you know, we're going to be in Springfield, Massachusetts this year and I'd like you to be our captain. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I'd like you to be captain of our American Hockey League team. I said, well, not a chance. He said, why wouldn't you? I said, because anybody who's the captain of American Hockey League team, He's going to be there all year long. I'm not going to be here all year long. I want to get out of here, so I'm not taking the captains. So he went and told Craig Patrick this, and Craig Patrick sent me a note. He didn't tell me to my face. He sent me a note, and it just said, Cam, uh, you should take the captain of Springfield. You're never coming up again with the Rangers. You won't play on the Rangers ever again. So talk about taking the light out at the end of the tunnel, right? Well, so, you know, that year we got in the playoffs with New Haven. The Rangers got in the playoffs and they didn't go very far. We didn't go very far. Nobody got called up to the Rangers. And so we were in Springfield. And that was the first time in my whole life that I, in any sport, that I never made the playoffs. But this team was not that good. We just, we didn't make the playoffs. And so Craig Patrick brought up four finalists, including George McPhee. Backman, a guy named Claude Rose. We were playing the Flyers the first game, the first round. And so they dressed me the first two games in Madison Square. I hardly got any shifts, just one or two shifts a game. I can't even remember, you know, if we won one and lost one. I think that's what it was. So now I'm skating with the Rangers, but I still don't know if I'm dressing. And Herb Brooks comes up to me the morning of the game of the third game. We're in Philadelphia. And he said, Cam, I know you played the first two games, and he said, and we didn't do that well. And I want you to know that it's not your fault. And that made me feel pretty good because when teams aren't doing well, it's not the guys that are getting all the ice time that get traded or they're going to slow their, you know, the best players, they're going to slow down their shifts. It's always the foot soldiers that they blame. Oh, well, it's, uh, let's just change that person out, even though he hardly even played. And so, anyways, when he told me it, it wasn't my fault, I, I felt pretty good because uh, I thought I'd be taking all the lineup because it didn't do that good. So now the first period we're in Philly, they are running us and hacking us and spearing. And we had Swedes and Finns and some guys in the team that, ooh, when it got rough, you never saw them. They just wouldn't show up. So we had guys come back to the bench and say, oh, I got speared or this hurts and I can't play. They said, Cam, are you ready? Well, I was more than ready. I fought those Flyers. Most of those guys in the WHA, I fought a few of them in the NHL, and I knew I had respect when I took on the Flyers. So I went in there that very first game, so the second and third period, they gave me a regular shift, and we were tied, I think it was 2-2 or 3-3 with a minute and a half to go in the game. 
And uh, Herb Brooks, he had enough confidence in me. He put me on the ice that last minute or so. And I ended up scoring uh, a pretty decent goal. I had to lift it over a rebound and I had to raise it up high and get it in the upper part of the net. So anyways, I scored the winning goal and everybody was pretty happy for me because I've been in the minors for two years now. I'm just starting to show what I can do. I can play physical and I can score. So when I scored that goal, I remember the Flyers, their radio guy came and got me and they wanted to put me on the air and they asked a little bit about my career and they said, Cam, is this the biggest goal you ever scored in your life? And I remember saying spontaneously. I said, well, it is if it gets me out of the minors. So the next game we played, and uh, I think we beat them. And so we end up winning that series. We beat them. Then we take on the Islanders. So forget about the two games that I didn't really get any ice time. So in, in, in the last eight games, I scored four goals. I did pretty well. I remember Barry Beck telling reporters, saying, you know, Cam should have been here all year. He's playing like he has been here all year. So... I was feeling pretty good about the next season, and Herb Brooks come up to me, and he said, you did so well for us. I can see what you can do. You're on the team next year, he said. Only you could uh, reckon for yourself. Well, you know, work ethic has never been a problem. I dedicated my summer to working hard. I, I was working harder than anybody. I paid a price. I got hurt at training camp, and uh, they misdiagnosed it, and I was out for just about every single I couldn't even walk, never mind skate. So I missed a whole year and a half with this injury. Anyways, when I get better, they send me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where the farm team is now. And Craig Patrick, he didn't care about the farm team one little bit. Like, he didn't. His focus was on the Rangers, and we were just fluff. So they put us in a place called the Cow Palace in Tulsa. It was just like it sounds. It was like a like it was for livestock show in there and so we had this dressing room that had a little heater up on the wall in the corner it was freezing in there our shower we didn't have showers we had this room with a fire hose in it that was it one fire hose and so me and another guy would go in the shower i would take the fire hose i would hose him up and down he'd lather himself up with soap then i'd rinse him off with the fire hose and it's my turn turn and that was that was it you know as far as like uh, the shower and then we never practiced in the Cow Palace because it would only be the day of the game that we would use it. In Tulsa, there was no rink where we could use uh, like a stick and puck. So when we would go to a mall in Tulsa, we couldn't use our sticks or pucks. We'd have to do our plays with a Nerf football so the defense would be behind the net. Throw the football to the winger. The winger would skate with it. Throw it to the centerman. And that's how we had to practice in Tulsa. And if we were going to use our sticks and pucks when we had time off, we had to go to Oklahoma City. If I remember, it's an hour, hour and a half away and spend the night. So we were on the road all the time. You know, after four weeks or six weeks of this garbage, the team folded. And so we played every game that year on the road. We stayed in a hotel in Denver, kind of like as a central spot for us. And so we lived in hotels, and we played every game on the road. You know when I when I when, and you know we ended up winning the champion Central Hockey League championship, but we became so so close just by hanging around with each other. So the only thing that I remember really about that year, other than every game on the road, when we played in the Denver, I don't know what the arena was called, but it was like an eighteen thousand seat arena. As we go on the ice, there was one guy right by. 
where we go on, and we were so close he could touch us, and he sat right in front of the glass. And he was the rudest man in 11 years that I played pro, even in the junior. I've never seen anybody as ignorant. He'd look you right in the eye, and he'd tell you to go after yourself and suck this. And he was gross. And you just want to spear the guy or punch him, but you can't. And he knows you can't. So he was rude, 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 rude every single time. And you know you got to walk by him, but he's always got some smart-ass comment. Well, one particular night, we're taking on Calgary's farm team. And uh, there was a guy on our team named Mike Backman. Some fan was chirping on him, so he was next to the boards, chirping back to his fan. And then they threw hot coffee on him. Well, Mike got so upset, he took his stick and he threw it at this guy in the stands like a propeller on an airplane. It was going around like that. And that man ducked and it hit the lady behind him right in the forehead with the butt of the stick. And so Mike went into the stands to fight this guy. And George McPhee and another guy named Steve Hakala weren't dressed that night. And they were on the other side of the arena. But George and Mike were pretty tight. So George and Steve Hakala, they come running all the way around the arena. And then down to where the fight Mike was fighting. And they joined in to help. And we had a few other teammates fighting in the stands. And there was a guy named Jeff Brubaker. Him and I, we we kind of squared off and we got each other. And we were standing right in front of that one ignorant fan I told you about. Just fighting was kind of all coming towards him. I see this guy. He reached into the to, to like the back of his pants and he pulls out a friggin' handgun. And he's got his handgun in front of him and he's pointing to keep people away. And I said to Brubaker, look at this. And, we, and he said, the guy's got a gun. So we got a hold of ref, and we said, hey, look at this guy. He's got a gun out in the stands. Well, the police were called, and uh, this fight went on for quite a while, but the police, they got there pretty quick, and they ended up handcuffing some of the hockey players and taking them away. And they came into our dressing room after, and what we found out is that guy with a handgun, handgun who was the most ignorant guy, as I've said already, he was actually an off-duty cop. And so nothing happened to him, you know. But with Mike, he was talking to me when uh, after because they let him out of jail. And he, he got a hold of me and he said, can I get sued? Yeah, I said, you got to hit that lady in the head with your stick. So he said, well, I'm going to get everything moved out of my name. And I said, it's probably too late. Well, the next day, that lady called our hockey team, got a hold of the hockey team. And all she wanted was for Mike to come over to her, her house I apologize, so Mike couldn't get in that cab quick enough. So God bless her that she didn't, you know, sue Mike. Uh, he didn't have a lot of money, man. He, he was a minor league guy, but that's kind of what I think about in the minors there, Chris. Not a lot of fun, I can tell you that. So maybe we should talk about my one and only story, and since I was only five, you're going to have to tell it. Surprise, surprise. But can you share... A little bit about Carol Alt and how I ended up taking a shower with a supermodel and maybe talk about her popularity in the 80s because yeah. she was probably one of the top supermodels in the world. Well, she actually was in the top five in the world, Carol Alt, and she was dating Ron Greshner and they actually ended up marrying and they're divorced today. As I said earlier in the podcast, Rod, Ron is one of the finest individuals that I know. Just I can't say enough about him. Pretty down-to-earth guy. But him and Carol were dating, and Ron and I were hurt. And so we were at our practice facility in, in Rye, New York, in Playland. And so Carol was in the dressing room working out. And, Chris, you were there. And, man, you must have been, I'm just going to make it up. I'm going to say four years old. 
But you had a lot of energy. So I'd give mom a break and I'd take you down the dressing room and I knew there was just nothing that you could get into that would hurt you. So I didn't have to watch you that closely. So Carol, she said, well, you know, you're on the ice. I can take care of your boy. And I said, okay. So after Ron and I skated, he stayed on a little bit longer, but I had my son in the, in the dressing room. So I didn't want to leave Carol to have to take care of Chris. So I come off a little early and uh, I said to Carol, okay, well, you know, I'll take over from here. And so she was working out in another room, riding a stationary bike. And I started to get changed in the dressing room. And if you've got kids, you know that if they're too quiet for a certain period of time, okay, what's up? I haven't seen Chris for like five minutes. He's up. Something's got his attention. So I started wandering around the dressing room looking for Chris. I went into the trainer's room, and I went into the workout room, and I went into the other room, and then I walked back to the bathroom, and there was Chris sitting in the men's urinal playing with the deodorizer. I said, oh, man. So I pulled Chris out of there, and I brought him back to the dressing room I was going to change and then take him in the shower. And Carol said, well, I'm just going to run in the shower now. Would you like me to take him in there? And I said, well, sure, if you don't mind. So Chris got to shower with a super bottle, one of the top five in the world. So I, I don't think he remembers too much about it. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember. And it's interesting because Carol Alt, actually, we follow each other on Twitter. And I asked her if she remembers. And she didn't deny it, but she didn't say that she remembers. And really, why should she? But I guess I don't technically remember either. I but Madonna doesn't remember me either. <laughs> but it's an interesting story. And if I don't give context, I can say that I took a shower with a supermodel. So I, I guess that's uh, all the stories you have from New York. It is. The minor leagues. So until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam.